Rivers Fog, a podcast dedicated to navigating and clearing the hazy fog of grief by sharing inspirational, raw, beautiful, and sometimes humorous stories. This podcast does not provide medical or therapy advice, but rather creates opportunities to transform the way we think and talk about grief and the importance of recognizing our daily griefs. We're the co-founders and hosts, Jim and Andrea, who simply want to create ripples in the water in your community so you can live well and die well because you can grieve well all the losses. We plan dropping new episodes every Wednesday with transcripts available upon request. Be sure to see show notes for further details. Hey, this is Zach Parsons with the Honeymoon Coffee Company. It is so cool to say that our location on Weinbach Avenue near the University of Evansville was the unofficial birthplace of the What Matters Most Evansville movement, the first meeting between Jim and Andrea. Come check us out sometime at either of our locations. Um, You can find us on social media, then come in and work on birthing your own big idea. Can't wait to see you. Cheers. Today's guest is Adam Hayden, who resides in Indianapolis. We met via LinkedIn because I follow the Inwell Project, where he was a speaker as. He is a philosopher, writer, advocate, and organizer for the brain tumor community. He shares with us his journey of being diagnosed with a glioblastoma, a brain tumor, in 2016 and his early 30s while being a new father. He has outlived over 90% of people with this diagnosis. He has a beautiful sense of humor while trying to prepare and cope with the not if, but when this will take his life. He speaks about how, quote, I'm not dead and that's weird. Whatever your personal beliefs are, please, please send prayers, positive energy, and funding and connections to editors northbound to this wonderful man, Adam Hayden, who is determined to publish a book, especially as he's preparing for another scan in April. Adam, thank you so much joining us from just up north in Indianapolis. We have Mr. Adam Hayden with us. Thank you so much. For inviting me on. I'm excited for this conversation. Yes. I know oftentimes, Jim and I, we like to share how we met the individual that that we are interviewing. And for those unfamiliar with the End Well Project, it's been something that I've been just really attracted to for several years. I had the pleasure of stumbling across the clip of you, Adam, speaking. And I thought, I want to meet this man. Um. I, I want to meet him. It's not every day that you meet someone that has taken such a challenge in their life and has taken it and the opportunity to be an advocate, to share his passion and talents as a writer and inspiring people. And so we are here to gather parts of your story and not just to inspire people, but really to help shine a light on how grief comes in so many different forms. I'm sure the meaning has changed ever since your first diagnosis, which was... Yeah, June 10th of 2016. So as we record this conversation today, uh, I'm uh, imagining the five-year milestone uh, this June in 2021, which is pretty remarkable uh, for this disease. Mm -hmm. And you actually, because on your website, it has a, a cake that has a brain on it <laughs> so yeah. so you actually have a this is the kind of like you, you're just almost like a birthday for you it's a crane anniversary that day 
<laughs> yeah, craniversary, that's right, for the surgical uh, procedure, a craniotomy, uh, which was the brain surgery uh, to remove as much of the tumor as we could. So that's right. So that picture um, was from our fourth craniversary. Um, and it is, it is a three-dimensional brain, <laughs> a brain <laughs> it, cake. I've never wanted to eat brain until now. So, so Adam, to, to give a little background, would you mind sharing a little bit about you and life before this diagnosis and things that you noticed and were changing because clearly it has altered what maybe an original path and future hopes were just five plus years ago? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I have been healthy for most of my life. And in fact, that's a joke that I make is that if it weren't for my brain cancer, I'm in pretty good shape. Um, (laughs) There's that one little thing. Yeah, Yeah. damn it. (laughs) Um, But, you know, so I was uh, 32 years old uh, when these symptoms began to to present. Um, I had left a career, uh, a long career um, for uh, close to 10 years at Starbucks. Uh, And I had worked in the stores and then had transitioned into a role uh, in corporate, you know, uh, learning and development work. Uh, And so in in all, I had been there for for close to 10 years. And uh, what had happened uh, is that through the Great Recession of 2008 and 2009, uh, I was moved around to a lot of different teams. And you lay people off and you change the organizational structure. And, you know, I was an asset to the company, which is terrific. Uh, But I, I found after about three or four of these kind of reorgs that I was happy to have a job. But the job that I had wasn't necessarily one that I wanted. Um, so with, uh, my wife, Whitney, although she, we were not married at the time, she said, if you want to leave that career and find something else, I support you. Uh, I'm not sure that she would, uh, repeat that mistake. <laughs> we did it again. Uh, but anyway, I, so I left, uh, and I went to grad school. And so at 32, I was a graduate student and otherwise healthy. And Whitney and I had actually started our family, uh, and all of a sudden had this weird, uh, symptom presentation that I had never had before. Um, and that came in the end of 2014. What did you first start noticing? I had the weirdest episode of dizziness and weakness. That was truly unlike anything I had ever had before. Just totally out of the blue. Totally out of the blue. And in fact, it came during the holidays. Um, so it was the day after Christmas in 2014. And it, because of that time of year, and because I was otherwise healthy, Um, this episodic dizziness, I thought, well, maybe it's the holidays. Maybe I'm stressed out. I had mentioned that I was a a grad student and actually a TA, a a teacher's assistant for a class. So I thought, well, busy schedule during the holiday season, stress can show up in weird ways. Um, So I had dizziness and I had weakness on the left side of my body. Too much eggnog, Uh, right? Too much eggnog, could have been. (laughs) So I just, I swept it under the rug because I thought, well, I can't explain that, but it's never happened before. (laughs) Uh, I seem to be fine on the other side of it. It was about a six to eight minute episode. Uh, and it didn't happen again. Uh, so I didn't worry about it uh, until March of 2015 when it happened mm. again. And that started kind of a cascade of about a year of worsening symptoms all around this dizziness and weakness, but always episodic, uh, always, you know, eight minutes, 10 minutes, never more than that. Uh, otherwise, I could endure it and kind of go back to normal. Uh, but over the course of a year, it did increase in frequency and duration and intensity. 
so by spring of 2016, these were really debilitating episodes. Wow. Uh, so it was time to take further uh, action. Yeah, set up the diagnosis. Yeah, <laughs> no. Yeah. So, so tell us at that point, where is your like mental, emotional mindset? Is there fear? Is there like, what's, what's going on there? Yeah. So, uh, conversations with my general practitioner and, um, you know, this is a, a family doctor and a family practice. And, uh, you know, my wife saw a doctor there and, uh, our, our young kids. And as we had more kids, <laughs> their doctors were there. So we were familiar faces. Um, so there was a real sense of trust, but I think also in the, that sense of familiarity, um, you know, the, the, exams were more conversational. And I was maybe underreporting um, mm. just because my nature is to be pretty laid back and to not be alarmist. Oh, um, yeah. So it was like, I'm getting dizzy and it's happening more and more. Yeah. Um, but by 2016, uh, it was like happening uh, a couple of times a week and then it got to daily. Mm. Uh, so my gut told me something was really wrong. And I started to treat myself as kind of my own case study. Uh, like, uh, th- I would try to shake my head around to bring on this dizziness. Uh, I would try to sort of jump <laughs> up and down. Just, yeah. How like, can I trigger this thing to learn more about it? Yeah. Um, so, so it I'm almost curious. sounds like that might have been some denial. Like you're trying to figure out, okay, I don't really have this. So how can I prove that it's not real? Like, and I'm, I'm reading into this totally because, of course, that's what I like to do. But was there any part of maybe that was a part of denial? Yeah, it's an interesting question. So I think here's, here's how I'd, I'd respond to that. Some of this is, I mean, we follow the cues from our clinicians, uh, yeah. from our doctors. Right. And the doctors were not alarmed. The doctors were puzzled. Um, mm. But I, I had one clinician tell me uh, that said, Adam, if there was something seriously wrong with you, you would be in much worse shape. Mm. So I, as I'm not sure if it was denial exactly, but I think it was like, okay, the doctor doesn't seem concerned. Right. Uh, so I'm not going to be concerned. Right. Uh, but then by 2016... Uh, when it was happening daily, and when it was clear to me there was something, there was something seriously mm-hmm. wrong, uh, then my gut, my instinct was telling me something that was at odds with what I was hearing uh, from uh, the physician uh, at that time. Right, L- listeners out there, never just always listen to your body. You know, we they call it practicing medicine for a reason. I'm not here to 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 you know speak badly. You know, they did the best they could with the information, but they can't always pick up the things in lab values and, and scans. And, uh, you know, in, in fact, um, I was driving home from work um, and this was in May of 2016. And uh, in Indianapolis, um, I know you guys are in Evansville, mm-hmm. so you may be familiar with the geography up here, but there's a main artery that runs north and south uh, right through downtown. And that's how I got to and from work each day. I was heading home from work from downtown Indianapolis, heading south down Meridian. And uh, this, the episode started while I was driving and it was, it, I could just tell immediately, this is worse than mm. what I'm used to. I mean, I mentioned I was enduring them, writing them out. I mean, which is a, a, a testament to the body's adaptability. Um, but in this case, maybe not for good. <laughs> you know, sometimes we adapt to situations and it's a good thing. Yeah. I mean, I was having uh, seizures, as we turned out they were, in my cubicle at work. You know, when it's like, <laughs> well, this isn't good. Wow. <laughs> yeah, but I was just Shit. enduring them. So I'm driving home from work and <sighs> one of these episodes started. Uh, but for the first time ever, uh, my left arm, uh, there's kind of left arm involvement that I had not experienced before. Mm. And my fingers began to tingle on the left side of my body, which had not happened before. So I knew that this was different. And I was, you know, I was uh, lucid. I mean, I understood uh, that I am now a threat to others on the road and I need to get off the road. 
uh, that being my regular route to and from work, I knew where the upcoming gas station was and I could get over there. Uh, and I did and parked my car and called the doctor's office right away. And that time said, listen, we've been trying to figure this thing out. Uh, it is really bad. Uh, this is um, an urgent situation. And so that's what set up this, uh, this exam with my doctor, which I now know was just kind of a standard neuro exam. But I didn't know that at the time. Uh, but now I get these exams this same way <laughs> all the time. So I've learned that this is a neurological exam. But, you know, there was some strength testing on both sides of the body and uh, reflex testing, um, peripheral vision stuff, the like sobriety checkpoint, uh, touch your finger to your nose yeah. kind of testing. Huh. And at some point during that, and I'm not a clinician, so I couldn't tell you when exactly, but at some point during that exam, it became clear to my physician, uh, Adam needs to get to an MRI and he needs to get there yeah. quickly. Oh, um, so I was ordered for that MRI uh, and that revealed a 71 millimeter or seven centimeter uh, mm. mass, a primary brain tumor. So tell uh, us while we're right in the middle yeah. of that, tell us your emotions yeah. on that right now. Like when right. you got that, what's, what's going on now in your brain and your heart and your body? Damn. Yeah. So here's that. Here's why I love talking about this, because um, I mean, of course, there is fear and uncertainty and devastation without a doubt. And I think I mean, that's the easy thing that I think folks think about, like, oh, sure, you get this brain tumor diagnosis. And in fact, that's we were called back to meet with my doctor. I mean, just within minutes of completing the scan. So it was mm. clear to us. This isn't like a uh, and that was a Friday. Uh, so it wasn't like, oh, we're going to wait for Monday for results. I mean, we got a call back. My wife and I, she left work to meet me. Mm. Uh, my wife has worked for healthcare now and for 13 years. So, um, less than that then, um, but a long time. And she knew that like a stat MRI on a Friday afternoon is a cause for alarm. So uh, I didn't know that because I don't work in healthcare, but she left work it. and met me. Yeah. Um, so when we got, so yeah, so we get called back to the office and my doctor says, listen, I'm, you know, Adam and Whitney, I regret to inform you that you have a brain tumor. So there is fear and there is that like, oh my gosh, what does this mean? So all the expected emotions, but there's something else that I think surprises people. There's also a sense of validation because yeah, you've been dealing right. with this thing. Yeah. And for me, it was over a year that I had these symptoms yeah. and my gut was telling me something's wrong. So it's like, finally, you get a diagnosis. So yeah. finally, there's that affirmation that patient, now we believe you. Uh, yeah. Now we see what you've been dealing with. Yeah, it's easier yeah. to deal with the direct knowing what you have than the unknown. Like the unknown is probably is more fearful. Yeah. And also, I mean, that doctors are a little bit skeptical of patient reporting. And, I, you know, that's not to I don't I, I respect yeah. the hell out of doctors and yeah. I really do. And I think they're healers. And I, so I, there's no bigger advocate for clinicians than I am, because mm -hmm. I think patients and clinicians are trapped up in the same big system. Yeah. Uh, and it it you know, takes its toll on both of us, you know? Totally. Um, so I got a, a ton of respect for doctors, um, but they can be skeptical about patient reports. So it's like, they weren't taking seriously these dizziness things I was trying to describe, it, but then you show them a scan of my brain with a giant tumor in it. And they're like, ah, <laughs> you were right, Adam. <laughs> there is something yeah. the matter here. Yeah. So our, our youngest Gideon, uh, he was eight months old uh, when I was diagnosed. And how old were your yeah, other, so how old were your other kids at this time? Yeah, so let's see, they're two years apart. So they were uh, four, two, and eight months, roughly. Wow. Okay. And so Jeez. just while we're while we're there with kids, because sometimes this is the left out thing, you know, like, well, they're little kids, whatever, not a big deal. So how, with with kids at that age, how do you, like, how do you talk to them about this pretty, like, 
big subject and, you know, possibly dad might be dying and all like, what was the, how did you navigate that, that kind of storm? And, yeah. and still navigating because. Yeah. And actually, and still, cause how, so how old are your kids today? Just for a frame of reference. So today they're nine, seven and five. So, um, I mean, and so I like this, so we'll go <laughs> good topical as opposed to, we're going to break up the chronology a little bit to make this, to have this portion of the conversation. Uh, so, uh, I had surgery, the craniotomy that we talked about that we celebrate the anniversary with a big brain cake. Yes. Um, so that, that surgery for me, that, so my tumor was big. So seven centimeters yeah. might sound small, but if you think about seven centimeters, that's the diameter of a baseball. So you put that thing in your brain. Uh, you don't have a lot of room up there. Wow. So it was a, it was a, an aggressive surgery that required uh, about 40 surgical staples to close my scalp. Um, so the kids would come and visit me in the hospital. And I mean, they were young, uh, but you can't cover up 40 surgical staples, you yeah. know? So there wasn't a way, uh, we couldn't hide it. Um, so, you know, I mean, uh, Whitney and I, uh, we, you know, we wanted to do this sort of the right way, the mature way. We didn't want to hide it from the kids. So it, this actually, the, the cancer diagnosis, the actual, the pathology, what the brain tumor is, came a couple of weeks after the surgery. Gotcha. Um, so when the kids saw me in the hospital, here's, this is, uh, I've, I've told this story. It, so I think this is a great dad moment, uh, but it was totally accidental. <laughs> so I don't, I don't pretend to be, uh, don't nominate me for um, our oldest one year for the holiday gift market. He got me a mug that says best dad on the block. And I thought that's probably right. It's about a block. <laughs> oh, well, I, I think that block has, has spread. I think that block has grown. Uh, but when they came to the hospital and dad has this big, you know, these surgical staples in his head, the conversation that we had then uh, was to, you know, I asked Isaac, our oldest, I said, what happens when you skin your knee? And he said, well, you get a scrape and it bleeds a little. You put a Band-Aid on it. And I said, well, what happens after a couple of weeks? And he said, oh, you can take the Band-Aid off and new skin has grown. Um, so we said, that's going to happen all with dad's head. Mm -hmm. And sure enough, when he came to visit me again, he showed me his knee. So that to me was like, okay, we are oh, we're, we're making a connection it. here awesome. for yeah. him. He's getting that part of it. Yeah. Um, Isaac's very perceptive. So as Whitney and I began to get involved in volunteer stuff, like with National Brain Tumor Society, uh, we get, you know, you just get swag from events and stuff. Um, so he noticed around the house uh, that there are these things that say brain tumor uh, and he was beginning to put the pieces together. Mm. Um, and so then ultimately, when Whitney and I felt like he was ready, then we just connected the dots for him. Right. And just a real conversation. This, the daddy's head boo-boo, as we had called it, mm -hmm. is actually this thing called a brain tumor. And the type of brain tumor that dad has is actually right. a brain cancer. Right. That is, Which is great. That's a great, for listeners out there, Like that's a great way to say there is a way to talk to kids. Yeah. They can handle that, but you've got to put it into terms. You like everything you did, you put it into something that they could understand. And because I think a lot of uh, sometimes like adults think that kids can't handle stuff. But if you put it when you put it into these like these pieces that, like you said, connect the dots, it makes sense in their world. And um, I think I just that's a, an important thing that I would love for listeners to know. You can have these conversations and it's going to be hard, but just think about how to make it relevant to their world. So, uh, my wife Whitney, she champion, advocate, best friend, partner, I mean, said, you know, so this, we're, we've been married for more than 10 years now. Uh, but, you know, I'm five years into this thing. So, I mean, you can imagine five years into a marriage that started as like, hey, I got this healthy, yeah. you know, we got married in our late 20s, uh, 29, I guess, uh, 28, 29. Healthy guy, 
had a full-time job. I mean, you know, with a salary and all that stuff. And we had just moved from downtown from a small one bedroom apartment to a condo on the South side. We had started a family uh, and all of a sudden we, but Whitney was not expecting that her husband uh, would get hit with a terminal diagnosis five years into our marriage. Yeah. Um, and so she was there for me from the start. Um, so there was never, I mean, she is like talking about in sickness and in health. I mean, Whitney embodies that. Uh, and, uh, you know, as a caregiver, I mean, I think that that role, uh, oftentimes is underappreciated yeah. in all sorts of serious and, and complex illnesses. Um, so shout out just to the caregivers everywhere. Um, so Whitney is an occupational therapist and, uh, her hospital is a teaching hospital. So she's been, she's had many, uh, therapy students, uh, rotate, you know, do their clinical rotations under uh, her guidance. So what's interesting is that we got to inpatient therapy to get me back walking again. Ooh. I was discharged medically from the hospital where surgery was performed, admitted right away into an inpatient rehab hospital. Uh, but my one of my therapists had been Whitney's student oh. for her clinical rotation. <laughs> That's so funny. Whitney, yeah, bittersweet slogan, that you're meeting right. her students. But yes, um, Whitney's tagline was, I'm his wife, not his therapist. Uh, that's, and that's so important to be able to, you know, finding certain boundaries within our roles so we can focus on her being your wife. And there's certain areas where being caregiver and that in of itself has different grief in whenever our roles change. Absolutely. Yeah. And she, I mean, and she's from the the get go. I mean, I am, I'm, I'm doing incredibly well for five years of survivorship with glioblastoma incredibly well so i don't yes. you know i mean i i, I want to acknowledge that attention evansville indiana local business owners what matters most evansville wants to promote your business through commercials right here on our podcast you can send us 15 to 90 second audio clips or we can even create one for you using a script and content provided all we ask is for any donation of your choice. To learn more, contact us at whatmattersmostevv at gmail.com. And check us out on Facebook at WMMEVV. In the beginning, it was a tough, I mean, after surgery, I mean, I really had a lot of impairments. And I did. I required, I mean, Whitney was there to bathe me and to toilet me and I'll, I'll be candid. So I've written, this isn't a plug because the damn thing isn't published anywhere, but I've written a manuscript. <laughs> hey, I'm trying to, <laughs> maybe we'll, maybe we'll be the first one to publish your words. Go for it because Here you go. For, awesome. <laughs> for, for listeners that may not know is that Adam's type of brain cancer, he has outlived over 90% of people with his diagnosis approaching the five year even right now, this very day, looking at Adam on our Zoom screen, over 90% of folks that were diagnosed when he was are no longer breathing. And Adam has found a way to be able to talk about that. And we'll, we'll go into, you know, part of that writing, which I definitely want to speak to. And so, yes, please plug away what, what you would like to share well, in this, so, so I have this kind of like memoir type thing. Um, I guess technically it's the genre of pathography, mm. pathography of your pathology of your illness. But at any rate, there is a chapter in there while I was inpatient in the hospital. And this is, so this is going to connect with Whitney as, as caregiver. 
the title of that chapter, and you know that I'm kind of funny, but it is the night that I shit the bed. <laughs> so that is from a scene. Yes, um, the night that, that I shit true. the bed. Oh. The night that I shit the bed. But Whitney was there, and she, um, you know, I mean, balancing, I mean, so we said that our, our third, our youngest, was eight months old. So we had these four, two, and, and recently born kids. So Whitney was juggling that, trying to spend as much time with me in the hospital as she could. Uh, so we would arrange it with help from her folks and from my folks to have kids and overnights and stuff. But she would stay overnight on, you know, an uncomfortable hospital cot next to me as often as she could. And I did. I, so that's a true story. I shipped the bed one night and uh, and Whitney cleaned me up because, uh, you know, I hit the call light. Right. But nurses mm-hmm. are busy yeah. um, and they've got a full caseload, a floor of people to tend to. Um, so, yeah, so Whitney bed. cleaned me up. Yeah. yeah. So it also could be a humorous chapter thing. My wife. So for maybe for your wife, like at the same time that I was cleaning, <laughs> I was wiping my kids diapers. I was cleaning my husband's poop, too. <laughs> yeah. Like not many wives write that story. You're right. right. Yes. <laughs> oh, yes. This so what? So Adam, just and this is kind of a side thing, but like, so what for you? Like, you've got to be sitting there going, I don't know. Was that like a. a what was that like? I'm, I'm trying to not put my own stuff in this. What was that like to go, oh, my God, my wife has to clean me up? Yeah. So that, um, you know, that relationship, it just turns the relationship on its head. Um, and you rely on, um, you know, I think we had we, we had trust uh, going into it. Um, but, I mean, you need that foundation of like, okay, I can, this is the ultimate vulnerability. Yeah. Uh, and it is you know, emasculating and, uh, you know, all the other, I'm not, uh, you know, because I know we're audio only for people listening. So I don't know if you see me, I mean, I'm not a athletic dude. <laughs> so, um, I don't have a, but lot you are wearing life. a baseball cap. So it makes you look, athletic. I am wearing a baseball cap. That's yeah, true. there you go. Um, but like, I mean, you know, in terms of like locker room talk, masculinity, like I just have not had that in my life. So I think it's been easier for me to be like, all mm. right. I mean, this is ultimate vulnerability. That's what is, my whole life story has been about just sort of the feels, you know, I'm somebody who who feels connected to that personally. Uh, but it is, I mean, you know, you, you feel like you're a burden, you feel guilty, uh, you feel apologetic. Um, it's just, you know, it's hard to, to look at the woman who you love, who was the mother of your children, and to realize that that person uh, is now directly involved with your just daily living yeah. and everything that comes with that. Knowing that your life, your future, your current relationship, your future relationship, it, it will never be the same. And it's so many uncertainties that lie ahead for you right now because we've we've talked, you know, before this is it's not if, but it's there's a good chance of when this cancer returns. And I know that you have um, you had a scan last month in January. Mm-hmm. And and knowing that, that just the fear and anxieties each and every time um, that you have your other scan and how you and your wife's relationship, how that changes or the grief that maybe resurfaces when preparing for these times with the scan. If there's anything that um, that you want to speak to regarding that. Yeah. I, so this. Um, yeah. Thanks for the, the opportunity. Uh, to speak to that, um, because I think it is one of those things that is um, it's well known within patient communities. I mean, cancer patient communities specifically, um, but is probably not well known in kind of the general population, which is 
regular, I mean, it's called surveillance in the medical community, um, but you know, this, this disease monitoring. And for many patients, it's some sort of scan, a CT or PET scan, or I mean, any sort of scan for me, it's MRIs. Um, and it is, it's, you know, you are going in to figure out this thing that's inside my head that I cannot see, that I have been told uh, there's a sliver of it that's still up there after surgery, and that is going to grow at some point. Uh, we just don't have curative therapy for this disease. Uh, that's the reality. So we need research, and that's all that advocacy conversation. But the, the reality is um, that there's a, a tremendous amount of anxiety around the scans. And the scan itself, I mean, I think an MRI, folks may know, like an MRI, that's a big machine, and I've heard that it's loud. Um, but I mean, it's more than that. You know, I get yeah. uh, an IV every time and that's, and l- little things, right? Like, oh, well you might, you know, blow the vein when you're placing mm-hmm. the IV. Uh, I get this, this, uh, technique called perfusion, uh, which is a rapid <sighs> injection, um, so that you can trace kind of blood flow within the brain for me. Uh, and that perfusion pushes quickly and aggressively and yeah. is a little painful. Um, mm-hmm. so if you don't have a good stick, uh, you could blow a vein. So, I mean, those are little pieces of like, so it's not only this big anxiety story about what is happening with this cancer that I've been told will kill me, right? That mm-hmm. big existential thing. But it's also this like tiny little, right. and people see my butt in my gown. Uh, is the vein going to blow yeah. when I get my stick today? Uh, is it going to be uh, busy uh, at the radiology suite or will I get right in? What I if mean, I just sneeze in the middle thing. of it? What if I sneeze in the middle of it? I had... I had a patient years ago who one of her biggest fears is that she would have to pee so bad in the middle of her scan and she would almost dehydrate herself because it happened one time and then she, it messed things up then it delayed and then she blamed everything on the one time she peed herself. And, and so just things that maybe aren't always related where people assume it's all about that big thing and you've kind of, almost describe that in various aspects that it's not always about the big thing. It's about the little things too, you know, not, not just being able to, will I work again? It's, can I hold my child? Can I hold up 25 pounds? Can I make sure that my vein doesn't blow just all of the, am I going to be able to wipe my own butt again? I mean, which sounds crass and funny, but I'm not really like, it's, it's, it's these little things that we don't think about. Cause Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think it was probably like three or four weeks into inpatient rehab that I was deemed, I mean, we've got levels and they mean different things. Mm-hmm. And I was, uh, so I've got modified independence, MI, um, in, during rehab. And well, even just that, even just that title, when you say that, yeah. it's like, oh, modified independent. Like, what the hell does that mean? Right. <laughs> right. Like, well, it, what it meant is that I could go to the bathroom on my own yeah. in my room. And that was, so I remember the first time, I mean, I, I was in the, the hospital after surgery a week there. I mean, from the neuro uh, ICU to a, just a regular recovery room. So I went from about a week in that hospital and then about three weeks in the rehab. So when I was modified independence, when I was in my, like I could go poop on my own for the first time in a month. Um, so you're exactly right that like those, those are the wins, you know? So yeah. while you're trying to wrestle with the terminal diagnosis, it's really like, I'm tired of having somebody bathe me every yeah. couple of days. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, my, my brain on one hand is just going so many different places, but I know that in this last five years, you've even have wrote about some, how your brain does go in lots of different places. And sometimes it's hard to get those mental faculties in place and noticing changes even over this last year. And 
despite, you know, more trouble with short-term memory and even noticing changes with irritability and mood and seizures and headaches and trying to still put forth energy of what you're doing with this grief and, and helping other people deal with this grief and being that ripple in the water is part of our organization is being that ripple in the water to help people know that, hey, you're a human. Let's not forget that human part. Let's not forget the philosophy of what makes us unique individuals, but all united at the same time. Okay. So Adam, one thing that at what matters most Evansville that we're really passionate about is getting people to have be okay with uncomfortable conversations that need to be had. Cause like people for like for us, it started off as people don't want to talk about death. So we want people to talk about death. But then um, you, when I read some of your stuff, I was like, Oh, this is so important because it's the, 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 well, there's the the death conversation. Like this makes this puts so many layers in this because there's with cancer, there's this death conversation that you have to have, or well, you don't have to have, but no, if you no. don't, people yeah. try not to have it. Yeah, but that's but that's uncomfortable. So no matter what the situation is, people don't like to do it. But there's also some things. I'm just going to read a few things that you said, and you can kind of maybe um, flesh those out for us. Um, so I, so the first thing I thought, I, like I loved your website because the first thing it says, I'm not dead and that's weird. Um, but then when I read down farther into that, you also add in the, the bigger picture of that, it says, but I cannot say that publicly. Um, you also said, um, I am not dead and that is weird, but it's also a secret I have to keep to myself. Um, and then there's kind of these, so like almost like, well, everybody's cancer is the same, right? So you had said... Cancer is assumed to have some shared meaning, and so we don't tug those stubborn details into the light to discuss them. And I love, love, love that imagery of, yeah, of like you like it's, t- it's a wrestling match, right? And we've got it's not just it's not just a simple thing that we can do, and everybody's thing is the same. So I'm gonna I'm just gonna try and shut up here and just let you like kind of flesh out those those quotes and however however you would like to. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. So, I mean, I think the, the, the thing to think about with cancer is that, uh, and, you know, I mean, clinicians will say, well, listen, we call it cancer, but it's really this umbrella of all of these different diseases that sort of work in coordination. That's all the biology of it, uh, the kind of aberrant biology. But the experience of cancer, what that's like, um, I think oftentimes you think, oh, somebody has cancer and, and here's what that experience looks like for people who have cancer. But if you think about uh, well, and let me say this on the front end as kind of a, a caveat or at least a qualifier, which I think uh, we like to say in the brain tumor community that come in different grades and uh, how aggressive your cancer might be. Some some brain tumors are non-malignant, non-cancerous, which doesn't mean they aren't a threat, right? Because a, a cancer can grow. It could be benign, but if it gets big enough in your brain, uh, it's going to kill you. So we say in the brain tumor community, there's no such thing as a good brain tumor. Um, and I think the same is true just across the cancer space. Uh, which is like, there's no good cancer. Um, so some cancers uh, you can manage, so you can get to a place of no evidence of disease, and that's where you want to get to. Um, and you can do that perhaps more successfully with some cancers other than, uh, rather than others, but there's no like race to who's got the worst cancer. So I always like to say that on the front end, because brain cancer is really grim and scary, and that's true, and there's no changing that fact of the matter. Uh, but even if you had an experience with breast cancer or a melanoma or something like that, and that you are 10 years, 12 years, 15 years with no ev- evidence of disease, I don't want to pretend that, that, uh, that I know what that experience is like. So every journey is unique. 
each cancer is seriously or serious. There's no such thing as a good cancer. And so I went, <laughs> that's my caveat um, at the beginning. I think so that's so some about like we think the cancer experience is similar or we, we can wrap our arms around it or something that just simply is not true. Uh, so I think about it with uh, breast cancer and aggressive uh, mastectomies. Um, that is uh, a disfiguring surgery that I don't, uh, as, as a man uh, who has not had that experience, I cannot relate uh, to those experiences of women uh, who have had aggressive surgery. Uh, so I just want to draw out those uh, distinctions I think are important about brain cancer, where I can speak <laughs> with expertise through experience, yeah. is that you've got two things happening. Uh, one is grim uh, disease. One is grim prognosis, scary disease, incurable, terminal, whatever word uh, you want to use to describe that. So there's the cancer experience, which comes with radiation and chemo, and we know what those side effects are like. But because it's a brain tumor, um, there's also all of these neurological deficits that come along with it. And Andrea, you hinted at some of those. Uh, so the short-term memory loss, personality changes. For me, it's this motor impairment on the left side of my body that I still have to walk with the cane. Uh, it's the seizures that are pretty well controlled uh, with medicine, uh, but I still, I've had big grand mal seizures, even on medication. Um, so those are some of these neurological components that come alongside the cancer. Uh, and I think people don't often think about that. They think, oh, you have cancer. So you had chemo and radiation and maybe you got sick and you lost your hair. Uh, but they wouldn't necessarily think about your personality is different. Mm -hmm. And maybe that's because of the meds or maybe because of where the tumor was. So all those other things, I think, just aren't, aren't thought about. Um, so that's part of the, the cancer stuff. Um, I think in terms of grieving generally and what it's like, uh, it's not... My, so Whitney said to me, and this is, and I want to carefully unpack this because it, it, it could sound crass. It's not crass. It's honest. Uh, and sometimes we mistake <laughs> honesty right. uh, for, for negativity or something, which isn't right. Yeah. But at the four-year mark, uh, so six months ago, um, we were happy. But Whitney said, how will we live another four years like this? Because mm -hmm. this is a tough life. Yeah. Uh, and we have friends. And like, you know, you share the statistics that this is 90% of people uh, are dead by now. Um, so we have a lot of friends who die a lot. Um, and that's a bummer. And so being involved in the community, uh, facilitating virtual support groups, moderating uh, monthly Twitter chats are a couple of things that I do. And, you know, there will be times when we're group texting with friends, like, hey, why wasn't so-and-so on the chat last night? And then we go and try to figure out, we go to their blog, their website, other friends, we go to their Twitter feeds. Has this person died? Mm. Uh, and so I think that's part of the, the it's sad, uh, but there's also guilt. Like I'm still here and doing incredibly right. well. Survivor's yeah. guilt. Survivor's guilt. Well, and so just along with that, because there's this, it's kind of a long quote, but I think, again, this is really, um, really important because in the whole conversation, well, let's just not talk about it. But you said, I, and this is kind of saying what you said, but I, it sounds really great here. Patients are told not to throw in the towel, don't lose hope, hold out for the miracle. But when we frame cancer survivorship by a relentless battle, we award the wrong priorities. Instead, we should celebrate reconciling the plans that we had for our lives with the reality that we may need to adjust our goals. We need to turn our attention toward grieving the life that is not. Maybe the miracle is not the life-saving treatment breakthrough, but instead it is the breakthrough of fresh perspective that asks honestly, how would I like the completion of my life to look? And not what can I possibly do to extend it? And I think that is like 
absolutely critical that like this is happening and by not talking about it does no help at all or by acting like that there is not a and granted yeah like let's think positively and do all that stuff i'm not saying that but sometimes it's like that's all i hear is like fight it fight it fight the battle and then that also when we talk about fighting the battle and i'm sorry i'm talking a lot that all of a sudden turns it into I either win or lose. Right. So there's nothing There's nothing that's either bad or good as opposed to, okay, wait, it doesn't have to be win or lose. Let's see what we can do with it. And I think that's what, that's what it is so important that we don't just say, well, let's not talk about it. And then, cause then when it comes and it does, death does happen. Now you're not prepared. So I, so just, and I'm, again, I'm talking too much, but I think that, that little, that quote right there says so much. So maybe just unpack that. And you kind of started to do that, but I guess I'm so passionate about that, what you just said right there. Maybe unpack that more for us. Celebrating grieving this process because that, yeah, so as unpacking that and how looking at the grief in this has allowed you to look at life different and interact with life and what matters most differently. Um, Yeah, so I I think I want to engage on a couple of points here. Uh, One is uh, to to lift up uh, I want to lift up the work of a palliative care physician named Sunita Puri. And uh, Sunita, actually, um, I was lucky to share Fortunate. Um, She's an author. Humbled by. <laughs> yeah, okay. Um, to share the stage with her at the Endwell. That was mm-hmm. Endwell 2019. So you can go and watch Sunita's uh, talk, um, Dr. Puri's talk. Um, here's here's what she's so uh, <laughs> incredible because she does so much with with language and words. And so as like being a philosopher by training, uh, I'm all into language and words. But what what she says when she has uh, patients say that they are waiting for the miracle, they're not going to give up on the miracle, that sort of thing. Sunita says that she always asks, well, tell me what the miracle means to you. Oh, yeah. Such a good, such a good follow up question. Um, But there I think there is a, a sense that so exactly what you said about uh, if it's a war, there are winners and losers. And not only are there winners and losers, uh, but patient to patient, all of a sudden there's ranking. So mm-hmm. that means that apparently I'm winning right now. And my friends who I've lost through this, uh, those who have died, they're the losers. Uh, so all of a sudden I'm beating them in some weird competition. Yeah. You know, it's just that analogy falls apart as you begin to look at it. I love you, Adam. <laughs> good. <laughs> That's good. Um, yeah. So I think it's not a helpful metaphor. Um, Mm -hmm. and so rather, I think we need to look at this thing, uh, in terms of, uh, healing. I mean, healing is the right thing, uh, that medicine has two aims. Uh, one is to cure and one is to care. Uh, and if you're providing a cure, uh, but you don't care about the patient, that's not great. Uh, and if you're providing a lot of care, uh, when there's not a cure available, somehow that's a little bit better, uh, that at least I felt cared for, uh, at least this clinician was kind and was honest with me and took heart in figuring out the type of person I am and what I'm about and what my family is about. So I think that's all part of that care part of medicine. And that's part of healing. Um, so the name of that involved talk that I gave actually was healing uh, while dying. Because uh, we might not fix it, but we might provide some healing in the process. Today's episode is brought to you by DeAndre Wilson, a serial entrepreneur. Are you wondering to what a serial entrepreneur does? 
No, they don't just eat cereal. Are you wondering what social entrepreneurship is? No, they do way more than just networking. Be sure to tune in to Rivers Fog here in a few weeks to hear more about how he manages to balance several endeavors and still manages to take naps. Um, could I, I want to say something about uh, anticipatory grief, if that's okay. Absolutely. Um, so I've tried to think of this. I mean, I've given it a couple of different names. Um, and what I've, I've called it in, in a couple of posts and things that I've written is that you're sort of grieving uh, the life that is not. Um, mm-hmm. So you find yourself, uh, you know, I had grand plans. I mean, I had mentioned earlier in the conversation that I had left a successful career, a decade long career uh, to go back to grad school. Uh, and that was part of this big plan to finish grad school. Uh, I was accepted to a master's program. And then that was going to, I was going to then apply for a PhD program and turn that into college professorship. And that was the whole, that was the whole plan. Um, But while I was completing the requirements for my master's degree, that's when I was diagnosed. Um, So that completely upended. uh, I mean, if you're told, and you know, we were told like you might have a year and a half to live here, um, then clearly trying to get into a three to five to seven year PhD program that, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense if you're only going to live for another year and a half. Um, so I think you begin to grieve these things that haven't even happened, mm. but you planned for them to happen. Uh, and that's, I think, another component of serious illness that people don't think about. They think about accepting the diagnosis now. Uh, like, how does this mess up your life now? Uh, but instead, you're like, actually what I'm grieving is not the loss of my life today, the life that is, I'm grieving the life that is not uh, and will not be. Yes. Um, What have you noticed along this journey, especially while dealing with different forms of anticipatory grief, how it's impacted your relationships or how you look at life and what maybe you do or don't do with your time and energy? Have you noticed things changing you know, maybe even more recently or just throughout your journey? Yeah, there's, you know, I mean, I think the other thing, because we are honest and candid about this, is that it has been, um, you know, this has taken its toll on my marriage. Um, and not, you know, again, I mean, we, we covered on some of the kind of caregiving responsibilities and that that's, um, you know, a sense of physical vulnerability uh, that your wife is now caring for you in these personal ways. Um, but, I mean, just the emotional the level of distress um, and trying to figure out. So I, I very quickly latched on to like, this is, I, I need to leave a legacy. Like I kind of, that's what I clung to. So I, I started, I mean, I went on a pretty whirlwind speaking, you know, a year, a couple of years. I mean, it was yeah. like, I feel good enough to do this. And so I'm going to do it while I can. And I would, I was on a lot of trips to, to go and give keynotes and talks and, uh, I'm so fortunate. I mean, I, that is a privilege uh, that I have, uh, not only because I've got this higher level cognition intact, when a lot of folks in the brain tumor community, one of the things they lose. Um, so I'm fortunate from that perspective. But also, I mean, there's a degree of privilege of like, you know, I'm a white man, you know, mm-hmm. and heteronormative relationship. And, a, you know, I, we're not, we are far from wealthy, uh, but we are don't worry about will food be on the table, things like that. So mm-hmm. I, I acknowledge the privilege it is to be able to go to conferences and give talks and things like that. But Whitney sat me down 
after a, a particularly busy stretch of a few months. And she said, Adam, you got to realize your legacy is not in the world. Your legacy is right here at home with our three boys. Nice. And it was a oh. wake up call to me because they were the, my family, oh. you know, I was given my very best to the world and my family was getting my worst. Yeah. And so that was a reorientation that I had mm-hmm. to make. Um, yeah. yeah. Well, I could just see that. Hey, I wiped your ass for a while and now you're going out being famous. Thanks. Yeah, right. <laughs> That's and- right. And even just knowing that there is that limited time, you know, it's very bittersweet when people have the opportunity to know in advance of a life-limiting disease. Very bittersweet. Bitter for the freaking obvious reason. But the sweet part is, okay, I don't know what this time looks like. Will I be graced with another five years? Oh, my gosh, that'd be amazing. And I sure as hell hope you do, and if not longer. But it's also, okay, this time. And... I can only imagine the grief of trying to balance this, you know, we talked about those stages of grief and the the meaning work and leaving a legacy, but wanting to be fully present with your kids. And sometimes that, I, I, I can only imagine that sometimes that can be hard of where do you put your energy and the time and, and knowing that your kids are old enough where they're at school now, um, it's okay, what, what do we do? Um, because is there part of you that you, want to do more of those speaking events or maybe it's bittersweet that now you can do a lot via zoom. Um, like you're joining us today. Yeah. Well, yeah. So, I mean, there's, there's, um, I mean, it is like all of this, right. Multifactorial and layered yeah. and all that stuff. Um, I, I think what's a, what's a, a driver in the decision-making that probably is worth calling out is this whole financial toxicity, uh, which we talk mm. about in cancer survivorship, but, we, I mean, I, I left, um, again, I mean, uh, uh, a, a good salary. I mean, not a, you know, not a, <laughs> not six figures by any means, um, but a decent salary for a middle-class family. Uh, and, and that I couldn't do that. Um, I mean, I can't, I can't drive. I have epilepsy as a result of this disease. So I don't, you know, I haven't had a license in close to five years, you know? Um, so, I mean, there's a lot of stuff that you can't do. Um, so I live on, on well, disability and my wife works full time and she, I mean, more than full time. I mean, she's has part-time jobs on the side to make the ends meet. And I work part-time myself. We, I feel like I'm in a position in my life where I feel like I'm well enough that I could return to full-time work. Maybe, uh, I think it would have to be a test. Uh, and that's a conversation that I'm having with my employer right now who I'm, I've been working part-time for. And we're having a conversation about what are the risks uh, I don't, I'm uncertain about, will my health decline uh, if I go from 10 hours a week plus volunteering that I do today to 40 hours a week. But the uh, draw there uh, is that right now we rent our home. Uh, we can't qualify for a mortgage because I don't make nearly enough and we mm. got a lot of medical debt. But if I were to go back full time and get a salary, then by the time our next lease is up, we might get qualified for a house that we could move into and own. So there's, that's, that's, just the reality of decision-making and how I put my time into things. Do I want to go back to work full-time? No, (laughs) I sure as heck don't because I think it's going to eat up my fatigue. And when I get more fatigued, I have more seizures. There's a domino effect. Mm -hmm. So I know there's health risk, but to feel the weight lifted of us actually owning a home, that's a pretty significant uh, motivator. Absolutely. That's just so... And again, more of the underlying things that you don't like, it goes back to what you said, like there's this big picture stuff, but there's so many of these underlying decisions that are now 
You know, like for most of us, like, well, I can, yeah, I want to get a full time job, and but oh, I can't. Be, well, I can't not. I can't. But yeah, you it's just. I don't know. I, I wasn't yeah. expect. I like. I'm learning so much here, like we always do on this, to think about. Oh my gosh, there's so many. And my wife was a breast survivor cancer, but that it was pretty pretty straightforward early on things. So it's just it's just. Oh. I just I just feel for families. So many out there that go through this and. And, nobody, and, nobody knows that. It's just fight the battle and keep going. But there's all these other little battles that are so much, so much more difficult. And I think a lot of people also think, oh, he's in all these travelings. He's on these like, you can Google Adam Hayden brain tumor, and you get a plethora of things and all these things you've written. And people would never think about, oh, like he might kind of have to work to make ends meet and have a house. Like pe- people don't realize that they just assume it's all hunky dory. Like, yeah. like me, I went from carrying benefits to I'm on Medicaid right now. You know, will we be kicked off? Probably. Right. It's a very bittersweet thing. And just people don't know all those underneath layers of, of what people are dealing with. And, and while trying to balance at the same time, your legacy work with your young children who are all currently under the age of 10, all three of them, but also making that lasting impact on the brain tumor community and within not just those living with a tumor, but also caring for and researching and and from scholarly articles to just pure entertainment and keeping people updated on your own social media. Um, I know that that's something that you and your wife, you call it the A&W tumor takedown. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So we, so Adam and Whitney, A and W, that was, oh, okay. <laughs> so it's not because you like root beer a lot. The A and W root beer. Okay. That makes, that makes a lot of sense. <laughs> yeah. We were, we were, you know, I mean, I think from the time we started dating, I mean, we were dubbed A and W. Um, and yeah, so we, uh, we actually, my, my very first, um, so I, I had started the blog like four months after discharge from the hospital as just a thing to like, let people know I'm, I'm out here, you know? Um, and that's part of that social impact. I mean, like some friends just ghost and that's, and I get it. I mean, this is a crappy, it's a lot to deal with. So I, I don't have any sense of like regret or anger or whatever. I mean, the people that had to exit the scene had to exit the scene and that's okay. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I don't harbor any ill will about that, but your life changes and you lose some friends and you meet some new people. And I just wanted to update the world. So I started this uh, glioblastology is, is my blog that I started in October uh, of, of after, let's see. So I was a surgery in May, diagnosis in June, October, I started the blog. Okay, of, of 16, right? Of 16, yes. yeah. And that was, people were into it. Uh, and uh, so there was some grumblings of like, Adam, maybe you should actually go and talk to people. Like maybe you should actually tell your story. Um, and, you know, kind of reluctantly, I was like, well, let's give it a whirl, you know. Uh, and it was, uh, I mean, I think there was some novelty of this being the, all of my friends and family and social network had not really heard from me other than just some blog posts for a while. So there was some, some interest. Uh, but I gave a talk at a community center and like 250 people showed up, which was crazy. Um, so our dear friend, Lindsay, who's uh, been a, you know, the best friend of my wife for like 30 some years, um, which I don't know how that's possible because they're both 29. Um, <laughs> but... Um, so Lindsay, uh, we had already been A and W. So Lindsay said, this is A and W tumor takedown. Uh, so, uh, Lindsay gave us that hashtag and we've just used it, uh, for the past five years, uh, to describe our experience. So that's where that hashtag comes from. 
and, and kind of, you know, things that you've shared. It's not even so much of like, take down, we're getting rid of this tumor on one hand. It's also like, we're going to actually take down this tumor, peel it apart. We're going to tell you like, what the hell's going on? Like, it's not just medical updates. It's just, wow, that's. Okay, so Adam, I'm wondering if you just to, so we don't get too far past it because you just talked about this. How? Because I was thinking about this earlier. Relationships change when this happens. Like sometimes when if you somebody suffers a loss or a death, like somebody people don't know how to talk to you, so they either say the wrong thing, they say unhelpful things, or nothing at all. Yeah, whatever. So just and there's a zillion different scenarios that we can lay out. But for you personally, how? Because you said. You know, some people just couldn't deal with it. Um, but so just talk a little bit about that, about the, okay, now all of a sudden you have this massive diagnosis and just not, not maybe not like the personal, you know, not with your wife like we talked about, but just your general relationships with friends and other just, people. How does that, what, talk about how that, talk about that. Yeah, and this is, um, I mean, I think this phrasing specifically is from uh, a woman, uh, Javi Carell, who's a philosopher who's written about illness. And because my background's in philosophy, she really met me where, where I am when, when I started reading her work. Uh, but so this, this phrase, I'll just attribute it to her, but I don't think it's a direct quote necessarily, uh, but I like to attribute. That's my academic background coming in. Javi says uh, that every social interaction is cast in the shadow of illness. Wow. Uh, and that is absolutely the truth. Uh, Every that it becomes, social interaction is casted in the shadow of, of, illness, of yeah. illness. Okay. And it's, it's true, you know, and it's, you get that. I mean, we all sort of, we can imagine the expression. It's kind of a head tilt, kind mm. of a, mm, <laughs> you know, so nobody, nobody ever asks you like, you know, how are you? Like, how are you really? I mean, it becomes a sort of like, people are worried to ask. People don't want to tell you their problems. You know, that's the other, that happens immediately. People are like, oh, well, I, you know, this thing just happened at work. And then they stop themselves and they're like, oh, well, I shouldn't complain to you. Um, so they think that you, they're, they're, you know, so friends think they're sparing you from um, having to deal with their stuff. Uh, and I mean, you know, some people are drama and you want to be spared. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, you know, what that does is when then so somebody who you've been a confidant to who they've trusted you to confide in you, then they pull back and they stop doing those things mm. because they don't want to burden you from a well-intentioned place. Right. But all of a sudden you already are feeling sort of less than because of illness. And now you're sort of further cut out of the just regular social dynamics of friendship. And nobody wants um, to be pitied. Like it's also taking away your role of being that confidant of like, no dude, bro, come talk to me about your shit that's going on in your life. Like I still care. Like I've got this yeah. really crappy thing going on, but I could yeah. still talk about it. Yeah. Yeah, it is. So, I mean, I think the, the so what do you say? I mean, I think that's a good, um, I mean, oftentimes I think you really have to, uh, you just have to follow the patient. I mean, I think those are the cues that you're listening for. And I think the, you know, I don't know, cardinal rules or something, I, that's probably not, it's too formal. But I think presence, people, uh, presence is so important. Yeah. Just a being with, uh, just even a silent being with mm -hmm. uh, is an important presence. Um, so just go and sitting at the bedside of someone, um, that, that means the world. Uh, to folks. So don't be afraid. And it's awkward. We don't like silence in the world. You know, we're always filling the silence with something. Um, but that silence and presence and a being with uh, is important. So if you don't know what to say, don't let that be a reason to not visit someone. Um, yeah. Just go and say, I don't know what to say, but I'm going to sit with you. 
Yeah. I sometimes that silence and that being with someone you can have a million conversations with no words, just that connection. And yeah. you know, when you think about your various grief experiences on this journey. Yeah, that's a thank you for that question because it's insightful and uh, and I have a <laughs> I have an answer, so that's good. Um, <laughs> Stellar. <laughs> you know, I I have not uh, up to this point in my life. My life, um, I mean, it's been pretty smooth sailing, uh, and I think a lot of that is. I mean, the the reality is like so. My, my little sister, so I have two. I'm the oldest of three. Uh, and my little sister is four years younger than I am. She has uh, physical and developmental disabilities. So growing up, um, I mean, my sister uh, is, you know, that, so that was insight into the world uh, because she's in a wheelchair. She has, uh, I mean, significant learning disabilities. Um, I mean, so it is, it was a very different childhood being with my sister than what mm-hmm. I would have with friends. So there was insight there. And, it, and so there were challenges growing up. Um, but all in all, and this goes back to some of those markers of privilege that I shared earlier. I mean, all in all, uh, middle class, suburban, white, straight, cisgender. I mean, all of those like markers of mm-hmm. just kind of the typical, the people who historically have held power. Was, <laughs> you know what I mean? There was I, less challenges during. Yes. Yeah. So that's so. And, um, you know, the stuff that I've been interested in, like school, I was just I was one of those like annoying classmates where like that dude that doesn't have to do the homework, but still gets A's on the test. You know, I mean, <laughs> I was that annoying guy. Um, so I just wasn't I, I wasn't confronted with much challenge. Um, and I, I kind of gravitated towards things that I knew I was sort of good at. So I never had an opportunity to show grit um, mm. in some sort of way. Uh, and but then it's like, so my surgery was done while I was awake. Um, Whoa. And so if you're like, all of a sudden it was like, I went from just kind of smooth sailing through life with some, I mean, so we all have obstacles and stuff, but um, all of a sudden I'm at an operating table awake, having my skull, parts of my skull removed <sighs> to cut out a tumor. Uh, and so all of a sudden you have to find grit if you're going to push through that. You know, wow. I was in a wheelchair. <laughs> my like... wife was wiping my butt. I mean, so all of a sudden it was like, okay, Adam, mm-hmm. you got to dig deep now. And what are we going to do? And so I think uh, in some ways illness showed me that, damn it, I actually do have grit. Mm-hmm. And I, I wouldn't have known wow. that had it not been for this experience that happened when I was 34. Wow. So you've got some grit. You've got a lot of grit. And apparently, <laughs> well, Who knew? And, and it takes a lot of grit to even share part of your story. Nevertheless, yeah. to get on a big stage and speak to people about, you know, something that's intimate, but it's also wanting to motivate and encourage people to also find their own grit too. And to not hide from difficult conversations. You know, I can't remember if Jim had said this earlier, but you know, one of the recent pieces that you wrote is I'm not dead. And that's weird, but you can't talk about it publicly. And now we, we're here to encourage your grit to be that ripple and the, you know, to feed your ripple and the waters that you are making of it's okay to talk about it. And we want people to talk about it because like you said, damn it, I've got some grit. Like we're not going to let Adam's story go un, unheard because there's so many people out there, whether they are personally directed to cancer or not. They are being, they're finding their own grit just hearing this of, okay, or if they can't find it, of 
wanting to find it, wanting to find some type of cause or relationship or deal with their own grief in some way. At least, at least that's what I'm hoping for, Jim. At least that's what I'm hoping. Um, because I feel like we could talk to you all day. And I know that we're sitting here at the Speak and Tell Studios, downtown Evansville, and we did a little panorama with Adam earlier to show him part of the river. And it's just perfectly positioned here because it's literally the river bend right down here in downtown Evansville. Because you overlook it, you don't know what's around that river bend in your life. Whether, And at the end of the day, whether we have cancer or not, whether we have a serious brain tumor or not, what's around that river bend? And, but you've had the opportunity to really have to rescale and reframe. Okay. What does matter most, no matter what the hell is around this river bend. And I was curious if, and I probably should have warned you, Adam, is that Jim and I are really good at asking long winded questions. When you think about all of the uncertainties around the river bend, um, I know it's been several years since you've been down here to Evansville. What things you know, if you had a list, a handful of things that really matter most to you right now that you want to make sure that you're experiencing or maybe not experiencing in this next year, what what comes to mind? That's a big question. Take your time. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, I, I mean, I think there's, um, yeah. So, so Whitney, um, so this, she has, held this family together. Um, I mean, that, that's an understatement. I mean, there could be more of an understatement than that. I mean, she has held us together. Um, and I think she, there's, there's a sense, she doesn't make me feel this way. This is me saying, I'm acknowledging she deserves some stability to come after what we've been through and what we will continue to go through. So, you know, we are, I mean, I shared a little bit of this around the financial toxicity mm-hmm. piece, but we have been working aggressively to, I mean, each time somebody is like, Hey, you know, I'll, I'll pay you this honorarium if you come give this keynote. I'm like, okay, yes. And then let's put that to credit, you know? So getting our family in a home that is comfortable, that Whitney is happy with, I mean, that was, you got to think about, she married me, as a, and I, I know I said this, but as a full-time dude in corporate with a salary, mm-hmm. uh, we had just bought a condo. We are starting a family. I mean, so life five years later now with illness is just nowhere near what five years would have looked like um, had all this not happened. So what I'm looking forward to uh, is that, you know, this all this work that we're doing, so it's two things, the work that we're doing to make smart decisions on a limited budget to try to pay down credit rather than take a trip or something. Uh, I'm hoping that that pays dividends. Uh, and with that, uh, I need to acknowledge the support of our community, uh, that people have showed up in big ways. I mean, we have been selected, for example, uh, at Whitney's Hospital where she works. They pick a family each year and they provide Christmas for that family. And we were a recipient of that a couple of years ago. Wow. So our whole community has showed up in huge ways. So also when I think about the future stability of our family, our community has a big role to play in that. But that's so one thing, one of four, one of however many mm-hmm. I come up with. One is that stability for the family. Um, I'm looking forward to Got to give you some peace of mind knowing that, okay, if and when this does take my life in X amount of time, that I know that she is going to be okay in that realm at least. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So stability. Stability. Absolutely. Yeah. For the family. And I think that, Mm -hmm. you know, I mean, another thing, I guess that is, 
you know, I mean, just to help shepherd the kids through this time. Um, mm-hmm. And I don't want to, uh, I mean, it's hard and they know that it's hard. Uh, and they know that, um, I mean, this, the pandemic uh, has revealed the difficulty of, I mean, I'm at increased risk for complications from COVID. So, uh, you know, I mean, all cancer patients, a lot immunocompromised patients. I mean, we've had to be careful. There's been national rhetoric about like, oh, we should reopen everything because it's just the high risk who are really vulnerable to this. So that stings. <laughs> <laughs> so I just want to get in that oh, comment. Yeah. It's just, it's um, just me, but you know, like, it's yeah. okay. Yeah. Right. Gosh, that's, right. that's terrible. Like we hear you when you say that thing, yeah. you know, um, but anyway, but I, so anyway, but for the kids, I mean, they know that like, but I mean, they've got friends in the neighborhood who is, parents have not needed to be uh, as cautious mm-hmm. as our family has needed to be. So the other thing with the stability with my wife and our just living stuff is I want the kids uh, to develop the wisdom to understand. Yeah. I mean, they kind of got shortchanged a little bit that we've, that their life has been different, but not to develop resentment through that. Mm-hmm. Um, I want them to understand that the sacrifices have been difficult and have not been fair uh, but I do not want them to resent the decisions right. that we've made to not let them, you know, go to a friend's house for an overnight or something like that. Yeah, so I look. You I, did you know, not want this. You did not want this for them. This was not part of that plan. Yeah. Right. Okay. Right. And shepherding yeah. them. I like how you said shepherding them so they can focus maybe on whatever you called it. You know, you said it's not the silver lining. You know, trying to find that brightness, but they don't harbor the. They don't stay consumed with the resentment and the anger. And they look at knowing that we did this for dad and he had our best interest at heart to try to make this as smooth as a time so we can connect. And I think the third thing, and this, so, so this is kind of selfish, but um, I'm, I'm trying to figure out, uh, and this is going to feel, I don't know, who knows when people listen to this, what it's going to sound like, but uh, I have, I mean, I've written a book uh, about this damn thing and I just want to see it in the world. And I, mm. and it's a weird thing. It's been, um, I mean, I've been fortunate to have a couple of shared, I, I've been, you know, hooked up with a, like a literary agent who shopped it around a little bit. And thus far people haven't been interested, or at least I shouldn't say that because that's being self-deprecating. People have been interested, but have not felt comfortable then acquiring the, the piece. And this is, I mean, we've only been rejected in the world of getting rejected and somebody who publishes op-eds and essays and stuff. I mean, I'm used to the rejection in that space, but this is such an important personal project uh, that, I just want to see it in the world. And so I think that is the one selfish thing around the river bend that I have uncertainty about um, is that I just would love to be living when wow. that thing is published. Uh, Cause I want to be part of a man. I want to do a reading of it. You know what I mean? Oh um, this is my thing. You know, this is my yeah. five years. What can you think of anything that we Evansville, Indiana, fuck the world. What can we do <laughs> To ha- is there anything that comes to mind of like what listeners can do, what we can do? Is it a matter of funding? Is it a matter of getting you with the right publisher? Can, what I don't know if you notice any particular barriers. Is it someone to edit review? What what can we do? Because, dude, your story has got to get out there. And for well, Adam, why don't you do this? So if there's ways that people, anything you can, can think do? of that somebody could help you, and also. Along with that, just give like the ways that people, because I'm sure there's people who are going, oh, I want to find more about this, maybe want to talk to you or whatever, like whatever ways that are appropriate for people to be in touch with you or just to get your stories, like all the ways that people can contact with you, like whatever it is, let, let give us that information and, too. And, and Absolutely. also, don't forget to help us know 
how we can maybe help get this book published. So yes, because we want to hear well, all, all those things. How yes. can how can that happen? Yeah. And just give us the ways that we can get in touch with you too. You're, that's very. It's a very kind uh, uh, question. So here here's the thing, and and I don't. This is not. Uh, I'm going to dance around the question, but I but it's but I mean it. I mean this is me being genuine. That I I think here's a barrier to publishing this book, and I've heard this from a f- several people uh, when I've when people have decided not to pursue publication of this book is that people are scared of the terminal illness thing. Right. And, yep. and part of selling a book is that, so publishers want to believe it'll sell and they want the author to be able to leverage a network to make that happen. So you want an author who can write promotional pieces for it and who can do readings and who can do, can show up at a book club and can go to a bookstore or whatever. Um, and so there are publishers and agents and editors who are nervous about working with somebody who has a terminal disease because they think part of our marketing strategy involves an author <laughs> promoting their work. So mm. here's you what you're doing with these conversations. I mean, the conversation with me, but these conversations where you are exploring grief and illness and death. The reason we got to talk about this is so that people that are facing life-limiting illness don't have other people making decisions about their lives yes. for them. So I think that's, you know, getting it into the world to not be intimidated or threatened or afraid of, of terminal illness, but rather to see it as an opportunity to learn about living by working with somebody who's dying. I think that's, that's the, the secret sauce here. Um, yes. In terms of, so, you know, I'm not going <laughs> to, you know, if you're, if you're a publisher who publishes memoirs, feel free to get a hold of me, but I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to plug any, I appreciate um, No, that's why you're here to plug this. We well, just for to- the average person that's like, oh, I'd like to, you know, find out more about Adam's stuff, get more about his story, maybe get in touch with him. How can, how can they do that? Yep. Yeah. So, um, I am across social media channels. Uh, I even got my invite to the new clubhouse. <laughs> Yeah, I gotta figure what that that is too. I can't even navigate Alignable very well. I'm I'm overwhelmed with all this stuff. Okay, so how what is all um, the platforms? Adam Adam you? Hayden, my name. Uh, I'm pretty identifiable by that name across the big major. So um, yeah, you can find me. I mean, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, uh, LinkedIn. I'm Adam Hayden. I use my real name in all those, and I make myself public and discoverable. So you can find me on social media. Uh, my website, which is it's a personal blog, but then I've also over the years built it out to include, you know, articles that I've done and things uh, that is I will say it and then I'll spell it. But it's glioblastology.com. So glio, G-L-I-O, blast, B-L-A-S-T, ology, O-L-O-G-Y dot com. Um, so that's a, you know, a, what do they say? A portmanteau, two, two, two words. I love it. Uh, so from the glioblastoma and ology, the suffix of like a study of glioblastology, a study of my life with brain cancer. So that's probably the best because from there, then you can see, you know, like my Twitter handle and email and stuff. But, um, you know, hashtag A&W tumor takedown and you'll find posts from me and, and my wife. Whitney, she keeps a blog too, faithhopeandwine.com. Oh, Ooh, like wine, like the beverage wine. Faith, like the beverage wine. Oh, nice. Wine. We enjoy it. <laughs> well, <laughs> why well, shouldn't? I mean, I want to be respectful of folks that, I, that choose not to choose okay. to abstain from alcohol. You're choosing some natural antioxidants, fermented grapes. <laughs> you know, I'm gonna. I'm still gonna go loop back to getting this book published because that's one of the <laughs> things that do matter most to you. Yes, your family stability. Yes, but this is one of those other kind of personal passions that. 
that is really at a hallmark of what we want people to do. When we can lean into our passions, our talents, we can grieve better. And when we can grieve better, we can live better and we can die better. And so I'm maybe this is something where like we need to figure out like who are your publishers? Like we need people to tell to have a conversation with these publishers and say, okay, maybe one day Adam won't be the one reading the stories and doing these things. But hey, look, we've already got 50 freaking book clubs across the country who's going to pick up those pieces and we will fill in and continue his legacy because I it just has to happen. So we're going to do this. We're going to find a way to do this, Adam. Well, I'm, getting, so, I'm tearing so up. Kind. I'm tearing well, up. Well, that's, that's a part of why we started this. I'm sweating now. i got to take my sweater off. A, a part of why we started this whole thing was because we both had this great passion for this to become a normal conversation. So in our perfect world... The publisher would say, "Oh, hell yeah, Adam! Not well. We're scared of that, but we've got to we've got to do this so that then other people will want to read this stuff, so that then it will become a normal thing for this stuff to be published. So that's that's a that's a part of our great passion too. Is we're we're kind of trying to push the same thing that you're that 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 like that has to be done in this world. We've got to talk about this stuff, and we've got as you've said, we've got to re readjust. The question has to be about readjusting, not about avoiding." I mean, many people have said much more insightful things than me around ending well. And there, you know, we know that there are terrific authors who have made terrific <laughs> points in this space. Yeah. And I'm just who are their one voice among the chorus. But I do think there's there's interest here. Uh, so, I mean, I guess two points, right? So one is like, look at Netflix. You've got Linux Hill. That's a docu-series, very successful, about a neurosurgical uh, service in a hospital in New York. The Surgeon's Cut. Is one and their second episode actually the surgeon's cut is about an awake craniotomy, which is a procedure that I had. So it's I mean there's clear interest in the space to learn more about the brain and to learn more about neurosurgery and brain cancer and stuff. So I think that's good for the community because the more people understand what the challenges are, uh, the you know I mean I think in the political realm, um, you know that when pre-existing conditions come under attack, for example. Um, us with pre-existing conditions say, you're talking about me and my life right now. Yeah. So the more people are comfortable with talking about death, talking about illness, being okay with those things, then we can personalize legislation. Uh, then when we analyze healthcare, we're not only thinking about, oh, you know, government healthcare is socialism. Instead, yeah. you're like, I know Adam and his family was rocked by illness. And wouldn't it be a good thing for his family that they could rely on healthcare to be there for them regardless of employment? Right. Yeah. So I think that's how we right. pivot conversations. It's through personal narrative and storytelling. So the more stories that are told, the better. Yeah. And along with, I also want to stick on that thing about Netflix. There is a series called Afterlife. His wife died from cancer. And so that it is after after she died from cancer, all these things. And it's like, it's funny, it's dark, it's poignant, it's real, it's honest. But it is like his wife just died from cancer and he has all these videos when she was alive and had cancer and stuff. And he just goes through all this like at his company and it's his weird like company and stuff. But it is, it is also, it is dead set. It is awesome. Real? And it is about death and grief and cancer and loss and everything. And like it's, it's on Netflix. So these oh, there's, good. there is a, yeah. there is a yearning for this, for this stuff out there. Yeah. Good. Well, keep it up. I mean, you're helping to drive and fuel that awareness and interest. Um, and so hats off to you. But no, it's just part of making these ripples in the water and your ripples. It's not about our ripple. It's about helping spread your ripples in the water because your story has to be heard, your memoir, the impacts you're making. And even if it's not with the goal of an impact, it's the goal of 
someone being validated. Mm-hmm. Yes. The goal of being able to say, this sucks. This was not part of my plan. You know what? I'm not grieving the cancer. I'm grieving the fact that I can't go do this. I had a vacation plan. I can't do this. Or maybe yep. this is what I'm doing and I'm, I'm okay with it. And there's that shift of where we're at in our grief. And so, again, if you think of something that we specifically can do that might help get this published, have a publisher, I will contact them directly and say, nope. I will find a way that we will find some groups of people that they'll fill in for the writer if needed. If Adam is no longer with us one day. I mean, you're kind, so kind. So thank you. We'll see it through. I will. I'm, I'm taking your confidence on board. (laughs) Take it. And, and I look forward to keeping in touch and I hope it's for a really long time. And if we don't hear back from you, one, I'm going to just tell myself that you're focusing on what matters most. And two, we'll, we'll know how to reach out to Whitney, okay? Yes, absolutely. Well, listen, we'll, we'll, uh, how about this? The next podcast, I'll just come down to Evansville. We'll bring Whitney and... Yes. Oh, yeah. And two <laughs> bottles of wine. Perfect. Yes. <laughs> this is just... That's cool. Thank you, Adam. Yeah, so thank much. you. This, is, this, has been, this has been just so... It's been fun. It's been enlightening. It's been real. All the things Good. we hope for our podcast. So thank you so much for everything you've offered, your time your story, your vulnerability, everything. Thank you. Well, thank you for the invite. It's, a, it's an honor uh, to be able to tell this story to the world. So thank you. I'll have to hashtag LinkedIn because that's how it happened. Maybe, maybe they'll right. give funding for your book. Okay. <laughs> it, was, it was fun. It was a great conversation. And yeah, let's definitely, let's keep in touch. sure if you have checked out any of our other episodes if this is your first time listening we've got interviews dropping since mid-september ranging from world famous palliative care physician dr pj miller to local artists our entrepreneurs videographers learning ways to journal through your grief sound healers finding grace and being grateful at difficult times Covering your flow and feigning others' flames. Tips on mindfulness with tech use. Just really helpful because we oftentimes use technology to distract ourselves with undesired thoughts and feelings, including times of grief. But as well as how to take baby steps and self-care when we've experienced grief and trauma. To hearing from grief experiences, being a realtor, and the importance of knowing your feels in regards to your financial planning. local organizations such as Death and Donuts, Leadership Everyone, and a physician that speaks to the power of finding your inner badass. Going from burnout to badass. And the common theme that we've discovered through all of them is that when people lean into the discomfort, when they stop hiding and running away from the pain, and they sit with their grief, share their grief, that there is healing, that there is meaning making, they feel more fulfilled, they're able to tap into their passions and live more purposeful lives, and also making positive ripples in their community. And so we've got lots more great episodes to come, including but not limited to a gentleman's growth and development and focusing on what matters most. By downsizing not only 
over 100 pounds, but the size of his home. We'll be interviewing a representative from our local Evansville cage, focused on social injustice and the grief that is present regarding issues that keep our community members up at night. Insights from a life coach who focuses on supporting women. In addition to a couple creating counseling programs related to families, relationships, and grief. Conversations with locals from Evansville Community Project to help nourish the conversation centered around grief to create safe spaces.